Well, you might have noticed that it's a little warm in here. We've got the lights off uh, this morning because the AC went out. And so, um, you know, it's just been one of those summers, right, where it's just been extremely hot out there. And we've actually, uh, a, several of our AC units have gone out. We've had to replace them or are in the process of replacing them this summer. So, um, you know, these are all unexpected expenses you don't count on, but it's good for you to be aware of that too, just so you know. If you got a little extra and you want, you want to help cover some of these expenses, it would be appreciated. But, you know, speaking of hot summers and everything, um, you know, next year, next summer, is the Summer Olympics happening in Paris, France next year. I always love the Olympics. I don't know about you, but I, I, get in, I enjoy watching those and get fired up about them. One of the events that I like is uh, the relay races, you know. It's fun to me just to watch four guys or four ladies just re- run really, really fast. Um, but you know the most dangerous part of the relay race, the part that trips up the most teams, is simply passing the baton. You know, it seems like something so easy, but just passing the baton, that's where a lot of teams fail. You could have a really, really super fast team, but if the baton falls on the ground, it doesn't matter, right? The race is lost. And so those teams, those relay teams, they spend hours upon hours upon hours practicing how to hold the baton, how to pass the baton, how to receive the baton, how to do this while going at full speed and not pass the certain line or the certain marks. You don't commit a foul or a penalty. There's a lot that goes into it to make sure that the baton is not dropped and the race is not lost. You know, as we talk about discipleship, in a, in a lot of ways, in a spiritual sense, we're just talking about passing the spiritual baton of the faith from one person to the next person who can then take it and run with it and pass it to somebody else. It's really what we're looking at. And so as we've kind of said, okay, let's, let's just zero down and really put some meat on the bones and just say, okay, what is a disciple? You know, we understand that a disciple follows Jesus and learns from Jesus, but as they're following what's being developed, as they're learning, what are they discovering? And so through that, just going through the lives of the disciples, we saw that a disciple is one, as Ethan said earlier, who worships Jesus daily, who is consistently being changed by Jesus, and who is increasingly committed to the mission of Jesus. Now this morning, we just want to dive down a little bit more. Okay, what does it mean to be consistently changed by Jesus? Theologically, we call this uh, process sanctification. Okay, as we're being conformed into the image of Christ and we look more and more like Christ until, until we meet him and then glorification in heaven when we become like him. But in this process here on earth, we are in the process of being changed, of being conformed into his image. Now, there are specific things that each of us need to be changed, right? There's, there's things about how we live, habits we have that need to be uh, reshaped, conformed, uh, sanded off, dusted up. You know, there's all these things. We each have our own kind of quirks and things that, that need to be dealt with. But there are certain things that are true to all of us, certain areas where all of us need to grow. Paul's going to write about a couple of those things in his last letter to Timothy. So Paul, in 2 Timothy, he's writing to his son in the faith, and he's telling him, okay, here are some things that you need to grow in. And so uh, it's important to understand that in Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, Paul's going to tell Timothy, hey, fight the good fight. And now in this letter to Timothy, really from his deathbed in a Roman prison, he's saying, uh, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I've finished the course. And here's what you need to know. 
Here's, here's how you need to run the race well. Here's how you can continue to fight the good fight. Here's where uh, the Lord Jesus Christ needs to continually to change and shape you as he does for all of us. So let's check it out this morning. We're going to be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, to give you the context for this little bit, in chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy about those who have abandoned the faith, about people who have left him, people who once stood shoulder to shoulder with him, working arm in arm together, making disciples. And, and he's really saddened. He's heartbroken because he's seen these faithful people and now they've deserted him. They're, they've abandoned him. People he never thought, people he never imagined that they would just abandon the faith, that they would give up their disciple-making mission that Jesus had adopted them into. He's heartbroken by it all. He even named some of them to Timothy because Timothy would have known these guys. And so he says, you know uh, Phygelus and you know Hermogenes and these guys left me. And and they've left the faith and how heartbreaking it is. And Timothy, he would have experienced that heartbreak too as Paul is writing this. Now, depending upon like when you date the ministry of Paul, but we have a pretty good idea that uh, probably somewhere between A.D. 60 and A.D. 65 that Paul wrote this letter. Uh, we think that Paul died probably around A.D. 65 when he was um, executed by order of Nero. Um, and so somewhere around there. And this letter was late enough in... Uh, Paul's ministry, he's writing as he's, as he's dying, really, that he knows he's not going to get out of this alive. Okay, He knows that for him, the end is near. One of the other things that he's realizing is things are quickly changing in the Roman culture uh, in regards to their perception of Christianity. Christianity was never like adored in early Rome or, or at the early parts of Christianity. It was never like, looked, oh, this is great. It was, it was kind of like a little bit of a nuisance, you know? Like, oh man, this, this up-and-coming uh, religious cult thing, like what, what are they all about? It was kind of a nuisance. But by this point, by AD 60, what's happening is they're not... They're no longer just a nuisance. Now Christianity is seemingly a threat because they're growing so much. And so public opinion was, um, especially those in the higher-ups in Rome, was very much against Christianity. Okay, And this is why you have all the persecution that's going to take place against the Christians. Um, and at the same time, Nero knows, hey, it's going to be good for my polls. You know, My poll numbers will go up. People will like me more if we just blame the Christians for the fire and all this other stuff. Like, so, he, so there's the intense persecution. Things are hard for Christians at this time, and it's changing. It's becoming increasingly harder. And so Paul, he's going to write in this second letter, and he's going to say, hey, things will continue to be hard, and things are only going to get harder in these last days. So Timothy here, he's in the last days. Now us, we're, we continue to be in the last days. But the, the encouragement is still the same. Like, yeah, in a sin-cursed world with unfaithful people, fallen people, 
life's going to be hard. Yeah, there's got, there, things are not always going to go well. In fact, things are often not going to go well, and you must remain faithful even when the whole world is seemingly spinning out of control. And so, you know, he's relaying all this. You can, you can, you can even feel this from chapter one. You know, people who you thought you could count on will betray you. People you thought would never abandon you just don't show up. People who you thought were committed to the disciple-making mission of Jesus will throw in the towel. It says, but then he transitions, but as for you, Timothy, my son in the faith, you can't be that way. You've got to stay committed. Now, in one sense, we look at this and we say, man, I just can't imagine that. Can I tell you, it was about 20 years ago, it actually was 20, 20 years ago, that I enrolled at Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay, and I had come straight from University of Central Florida, studied radio, TV, broadcasting there, and then I go to Dallas Theological Seminary, going to study the Bible and pastoral leadership and things like this. And at orientation, there at orientation, the, the guy leading it, he says, okay, I want you to greet the, the guy to your left, the, or the person to your left, the person to your right. And so I greet these two guys, right? I meet the guy on my right. He came from Bible college. He knew like the names of all the DTS professors. He had read many of their books. I mean, he was just like chomping at the bit. He was ready to go. The guy to my left, he, he was the son of missionaries. His dad was a DTS alumni. I mean, he was just so excited to be at DTS. And then there's me, right? And I'm pretty green. I, I, you know, I, I don't know the Bible all that well. I mean, I read some of it, but I was really reading more books about the Bible than the Bible itself. And, I'm, and then the guy up front, he says, okay, now look at the guys to your right and left again. Uh, statistics tell us that in 10 years, only one of the three of you will most likely still be in full-time vocational ministry. And statistics also tell us that in 10 years, most likely one of the three of you will uh, fall away from the faith altogether. And I'm looking at these two guys thinking, okay, this is the son of a missionary. This guy just went to Bible college. I was studying how to talk on the radio. I'm in trouble. I mean, this, this is, you know, this might be, this might be rough because I don't think these guys are falling away. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, I don't know what happened to those guys. They, they did not become like close friends of mine at Dallas, but there was about six of us, and we were really close, and we, we hung out a lot, and they were faithful guys, had a, had a great time with those guys. Uh, today, there's two of us, two of the six, who are still in full-time vocational ministry, and one of the six is pretty much falling away from the faith altogether. What they said at that orientation has really turned true, and the thing is, though, you all know people in your own life, don't you? Where you can look around and you can think, I know people. I never dreamed that they would fall away from the faith. I never dreamed that they would just give up and throw in the towel and, and be done. And yet you're heartbroken because you know that they have. This is where Paul is writing from. This is the hurt that he's experiencing. And Timothy feels it. He can feel it because he would have known these guys as well. And so, you know, sometimes we have this idea that when you come to Christ, everything's just going to be great. You know, I don't know, I don't know where this mythology came from. That, hey, when you become a Christian, then, you know, you, there's no more traffic jams, you know, no more weeds in your garden, things like this. Uh, it just doesn't happen, right? No. In fact, Jesus promises something altogether different. He says, if you follow me, there's going to be suffering. If, if, if you look like me, they're going to treat you how they treated me. You're going to be persecuted. Things are going to be hard. 
And so he's encouraging Timothy. Hey, you see other people falling away because things are hard and things are difficult. I don't want that for you. But you're going to need to change. There's going to be some growth that continues to happen. And so the first thing that he tells them is, hey, when trouble comes, when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, you endure it. You bear it. Like a, like a soldier in the heat of battle, you endure suffering. And so he, he draws this analogy to this soldier, join in this hard, laborious task. And you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus. But it's worth it. And you grow in your endurance of, of the hardship and of the difficulties that come. And so uh, by the time Paul is writing this letter, uh, the, the Roman road system that kind of became famous uh, was in full effect. And so you had Roman soldiers who were moving and they were being stationed all over the empire, but primarily on the borders. Because Rome understood that, hey, the most, the biggest threat to our civilization is at the border. That's where intrusion comes. And so they always had Roman soldiers on the border areas in particular. Uh, but, um, it would not have been uncommon, therefore, for people in the Roman Empire to see soldiers moved about. And as they're moving about, they had a, it, it, I was reading about it this week and just the, just the strategy that went into it and how they developed these guys' strength and their skill and, and really this discipline that, uh, that was enforced and how diversions would not be tolerated and things like this. But, uh, and because the Roman military was so prolific, that as Paul's writing this about having just the endurance of a soldier, these guys, they, they would be able to picture that. It would, it would be this mental image. Man, I, I know how hard that is. It's not an easy job. I know how hard that is. And, I, and we've got to, we must, Paul says, have the endurance of a soldier, the dedication that a soldier has. A soldier who doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs uh, because the soldier ultimately has one chief obligation, and that's to the commanding officer. I understand the mission that I've been given. And so that's number one. That's my number one topic of concern. And in the same way, we understand who our commanding officer is. So he sets our agenda. He sets our mission. The world doesn't dictate our values. The world doesn't dictate our conversation. The world doesn't dictate our identity, how we think, how we feel. No, no. We come to Scripture and we allow the king to give us our marching orders. He sets the agenda. Like, like a good soldier, we endure the suffering of the world because we know and we hear from our commanding officer. And this is the image that Paul is pouring into Timothy. But you've got to grow in that. It's not like you become a Christian all of a sudden, okay, yeah, I'll endure whatever comes my way with Thanksgiving. It's all good. No, no, no. None of us, it doesn't happen that way, right? It's through relationship and it's through growth and knowing Christ better, that then when hardship comes, we don't whine about it. We don't just throw our hands in the air and say, oh, well, we don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. We endure, and we continue in the mission that he's given us. Now, but even as striking and as recognizable as the, as the soldier Im- imagery is, Paul doesn't end there. He says, no, no, that's not the only area you've got to grow in, though. And as believers, we also need to grow in this area of discipline. He says you need to have the discipline of an athlete. Have any of you ever hung around like professional athletes? 
I'm not talking about like the, the jock at the Y on, you know, Saturday afternoon or something who's pretty good, but I mean a professional athlete, you know, who they put in time. Uh, like I said earlier, I, I studied radio, television, broadcasting, and I spent a season covering the Orlando Magic. And so I got to interview a lot of professional basketball players and coaches. And I can tell you something, those guys are nuts. I mean, they're crazy. The, the, just the amount of time and practice and energy that they put in to being excellent at their craft. You know, they, they just don't show up on the court one day and all of a sudden they're really good at basketball, right? No, no, it's been years in the making. Way before they ever hear their name announced on the loudspeaker, where, way before anybody's ever like clapping for them in the arena or they're playing under the big lights, they've been playing in dark gyms. You know, and they've been putting in the hard work, and it's a ton of exercise. They wake up early in the morning, they work out. They have strict diets that they adhere to, and they sacrifice their social lives at times, and they put in a lot of effort. It's discipline. It's discipline. And you know when the game is won? It's not won after the whistle is blown. It's won well before the whistle is ever blown. It's won on in the practice fields. It's won with all that hard work. With all that discipline, when everyone else is sleeping, they're working out, they're exercising, they're perfecting their craft, they're studying their opponents so they know their weaknesses and how they can win the game. That's when the game is won. And so Paul's now saying to me, hey, you take your identity as a disciple maker with that type of seriousness, where you're disciplined like an athlete. And so Paul, he, he's going to continue this imagery and he's going to say, hey, I want to receive the crown. I want to receive the crown of righteousness because at the end of the letter, he says, hey, the crown of righteousness isn't for me only. It's for all of us who hope in his appearing. And, and I want that crown. So when the world is saying, hey, you're missing out. There's all this stuff you could be doing. And you're spending so much time like studying the Bible or you're always talking about Jesus and all this stuff. You're missing out. Say, so, no, 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 I don't care about missing out on that. I don't want to miss out on what God has called me to because he sets my agenda. And so we grow in this discipline. We grow in the discipline of reading and studying and understanding God's word. We grow in the discipline of prayer. We grow in the, in the discipline of just submitting our lives into the lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't just, we're not just saved, born again, and now all of a sudden, man, we're super disciplined people. It doesn't work like that. There's this growth aspect that takes place. So we, like an athlete, we learn to be disciplined. But Endurance, discipline, that's not all. Those aren't the only things that Paul's talking about here. He also uses the illustration of a farmer. And in Paul's day, everybody knew a hardworking farmer, okay? Most people, if they weren't farmers themselves, they were at least related to a farmer, okay? It was a very agricultural-driven society. There was a ton of farmers. And in those days, there was no machinery doing the work, right? It was all done by hand. They had to cultivate the land, by hand. They had to go and seed the land by hand. They had to weed the land by hand. They, they had to harvest all the, all the crops by hand. It was early in the morning to late at night. It was really hard work. And so Paul's saying, like the, have the diligence of a farmer. Because if you don't, what happens? If a farmer just says, you know what, I don't feel like doing this, then the land's not ready to seed. And then, or you throw the seed in, you say, I'm done. Then what happens? It just gets overgrown. Weeds spring up. The crops get scorched. Say, well, you know, I don't feel like harvesting. I'm just, I'm kind of tired. All that, 
all that weeding and stuff is just kind of beat me down. Well, then, when, then it just rots on the vine. You know, you, you have to continually have this diligence. And Paul's saying the same thing is true for us. That we have to have the diligence of cultivating relationships with people where we really get to understand people. And we know their hopes and their hurts, their dreams and their, and their worries, their highs and their lows. But you have real authentic relationships with people because you care about the whole person. And then once you have those relationships and you've cultivated that ground, you're, you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the seed, you're sharing the truth of God's word. And yeah, they come to Christ, but you're still not done because you're weeding out false thinking. You're weeding out all the stuff that the world is trying to put in. And, and you're weeding out these other kind of uh, sinful behaviors and habits that we all kind of had that need to be shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. And so the work's not done. And then, and then you're equipping them so that they can have their own harvest, so that they can be faithful and they can pass the baton to the next person. And so we learn like a farmer, diligence. Like a farmer, we learn diligence. If, if, if you don't follow Jesus, and if you're not being consistently changed by him, to be able to learn to endure hardship, to be disciplined in the spiritual habits that help us, uh, that produce growth, and just the diligence of doing what he's called us to do, um, then oftentimes you see people who are ended up like Paul's friends, like some of my friends from seminary, who the worries of the world, the cares of life, just distractions, sometimes good, sometimes bad, just weighs down on people and they throw in the towel. And Paul knows this. And what does he want for Timothy? Not that. He said, no, I want you to be able to run the race. I want you to be able to receive the crown. I want you to be able to complete the mission. How do you complete the mission? Well, you know your identity. You know who you are. I mean, this is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, hey, Timothy, remember the things that I've taught you, what you've heard from me, what you've learned from me. I want you to be rooted in that. You keep listening to that because the world's going to try to tell you who you are. The world's going to try to tell you what's true. The world's going to try to tell you how to feel and how to think. No, no, you're shaped by scripture. Remember what I've poured into you Remember who God is, what he's done, so that you know who you are. And so, you know, just thinking about this, it, it, it kind of brought my mind to Moses. And, you know, his story is incredible. You know, you, you think about the story of Moses, and here's a guy who, he grew up essentially being trained to lead armies, you know, and to lead a nation. But at the same time, he never forgot who he was. You know, he's raised like an Egyptian, but he never forgot the fact that he was a Hebrew, and so as he grows up, and then at the age of about 40, he sees uh, an Egyptian taskmaster beating, mistreating a Hebrew. Well, he just couldn't take it, right? He steps in and he kills the taskmaster. And even at that time, the, the Hebrews became like afraid of him. He's forced to run off into Midian to hide for his own safety. And then he, he spends the next 40 years of his life in somewhat obscurity in Midian, just kind of wandering around in the desert, learning from his father-in-law, Jethro, who's a priest, just who God is. He's having to unlearn all these things about himself and about the world and just learn who God is and what he's done. And then one day God shows up in that burning bush and has this conversation with Moses. Hey, Moses, you're the guy who I want to lead my people out of Egypt. 
And at that time, Moses is like, I'm well past my prime. You know, that maybe 40 years ago I could have done it, but I can't do it now. And so he starts throwing excuse after excuse after excuse, saying, who am I? And you know what? We all feel like that sometimes, don't we? God, who am I that you could use me to impact others, to disciple others? Am I really a disciple? Man, I don't feel like I, I'm qualified. This is the same thing that Moses is asking. Who am I? But it's not just there. He says, I can't even speak that well. It's a, it's a, it's a statement of skill. Like, what, what skill? What ability? I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. And then, he, and then he's also saying, and, you know, what, what's your name? I don't have all the knowledge. I don't, I don't think I know enough. And the, the questions that Moses is raising are the objections that we all tend to raise. I'm not confident enough in myself. And the reason why we ask those questions and those are the hiccups that we have is because we're looking at ourselves, and we see our own deficiencies. We see our own shortcomings and we look, I'm, I'm just not qualified. And what's God saying? No, you're not, but I am. And I qualify you. I equip you to do what I've called you to do. And so then there's this wonderful exchange with Moses where God essentially tells him, hey, I'm going to be with you. And Moses says, that's great. But when I tell the Hebrew people that you sent me, uh, like, what should I tell them that your name is? Now, it's not that Moses didn't have a name for God, okay? Moses, he had the name Elohim, okay? The divine one. They used that. They, he had ways of referring to God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's not that he didn't have a way to refer to God. The question that Moses is essentially asking is, you know, we know that you're a God of the past, right? We know that you're the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, but is there anything in the character of your name that will assure these people that you're with them now? Because they've endured all this slavery, all this mistreatment by the Egyptians, and we're just kind of feeling beaten down. Is there anything in the character of your name that can assure us that you're still a present God? And so what does God say? You tell them that I am. I am the present one. I am, I am living. I'm active. I'm here. I'm not just a God of the past. I'm a God of the present. You know, increasingly, I, I think a lot of people in our culture are asking that same thing, essentially. You might not say it that way. But hey, I mean, maybe God showed up for Paul and Peter and John and David and Moses and Abraham and some of these guys, but what's he doing in our world today? Because I look around and I see like the mess and the chaos and the confusion. And is God present today? Can he speak to today? And this conversation that he had with Moses affirms that. Yes, I am. I am present As you grow in these disciplines, as you grow in enduring hardship, as you grow in just the the spiritual disciplines, as you grow in your diligence to the task that God has called you to, there is this great assurance, oh yeah, he's still present because I've seen him working. I've seen him working. I've seen how he's changed me. I know the power of change in my own life because I wouldn't be like this if not for God. I can tell you, if not for God, I would have been one of the ones who just kind of threw in the towel too. I'm telling you. I, I didn't have the background that these other guys had at seminary coming into it. You know, and I would have easily just thrown in the towel. But because of God's grace, because of God's grace, and then 
faithfulness in conjunction with his grace. You say, praise God, but it's all him. It's all him. Now, part of the mission is knowing your identity. The other part of the mission is the obedience of doing what you're called to do. And so Paul, he's writing to Timothy and he's telling Timothy, okay, so here's what you do. What you've learned from me, what you've heard from me, I want you to take that and I want you to pass that on to faithful men. And then you equip those faithful men so that they can take what they're learning from you, what you got from me, to pass on to other people who will be able to, so they'll be able to train others also. Now, you see this? It's like the relay race, right? It's like the baton. You got four generations right here. You got Paul, you got Timothy, you got faithful men, and then you got the other people that those faithful men are passing it to. It's the, it's the baton of faith being passed from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And understand, the quality there is faithfulness. It's not skill. It's not ability. It's not talent. No, it's faithfulness. That's it. Faithfulness. And so the question comes, as I was just studying and reading about this, it just made me think, if, if Timothy would have been reading this letter in a, in a room like this, and he's hearing this from Paul, okay, I got I to take what I'm learning from you, and I got to pass it on to faithful people. Would he have looked at you? Would he have looked at me? Or would he have thought, you know what? If it goes there, the baton might drop. That's the question. Are we faithful? Because when you're faithful, what happens? Life changes. You change. You look more and more like Jesus because he's doing the work in you. May we run the race well because we're faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. God, you're always good to us. And you look at us not based on skill or merit or talent or ability or personality or anything like this. God, you, you look at us as your children. You say, I'm equipping my children to do the mission that I've called them to. So God, may we look to you, our Heavenly Father, not ourselves and get trapped in our own shortcomings and our own weaknesses and all of that. But God, may we look to you because you are the one who equips. You are the one who changes. God, may we be changed consistently into the image of your son so that we are able to represent him well to our culture. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.